Well, during my sixth grade year, when I was in sixth grade, basketball team that I played on uh, was not very good. We were not a very good team in sixth grade, a bunch of 10, 11, 12-year-olds. In fact, we were actually really terrible. Uh, we hadn't won a game all season, and the season was coming to a, a close. We only had a couple games left. Somehow, somehow, miraculously, one of the last games that we played, we won. Now, keep in mind, this was just a, a regular season game. This wasn't a conference game. Again, we were a bunch of sixth graders. Not a conference game. It wasn't some regional game. It was just a regular season game against a team. I don't even remember who they were. But we won. And when that timer ran out on that scoreboard, and the points on our column was more than the points on the other team's column, which we had not seen at all throughout the whole season, uh, you would have thought, you would have thought when that buzzer rang out, by watching our reaction to that win that we had just won the state championship. I, I mean, we were, we were hugging each other. We were jumping up, and as before we do the high fives with the other team, like to say good game. Like we are, I mean, we're going, ec- we are ecstatic. Uh, if, if sixth grade boys could cry, we were crying in that moment, right? We were cheering. So remember this moment, high-fiving. I'm a little embarrassed to say, but we may, we may have broken into the song, We Are the Champions, in the locker room. We didn't do it on the court. We, we held that for the locker room, but we were singing, We're the Champions. No time for losers. We are the champions. We won one game, one game. But a win is a win, right? A win is a win, and, and victory requires some kind of response. Uh, ours was a little over the top, a little over the top, but, but we see this kind of response a lot of times just in humanity, right? So uh, when politicians win elections, there's celebration by their supporters. When sports teams uh, win the World Series, actually earn it, uh, the Super Bowl or the World Cup, they're singing, there's, there's cheering, there's loud celebration that lasts uh, four days because it is well-earned and deserved. There's, these are natural responses to, to our, our, our victory, things that we enjoy, that we delight in. We, we respond in these ways. Uh, all of us, all of us have a song that we're singing Every one of us here has a song that we are singing. And what I mean by that is, is all of us have something that has captivated us, that something that our heart delights in, uh, something that we just, we just naturally respond to. And, and so the question is, is whatever that has captivated your heart that, that's causing you to sing the song that you sing, is, is it sufficient? Is it sufficient to hold your affections eternally? Meaning that there's never going to be an end to the, the absolute delight that your heart has and holds in that object, whatever it may be. All of us are singing a song, and so we have to answer this question internally. What is the song that you're singing? Uh, Judges 5, as, as we just heard read, it, it's a song. It, it's a response Judges 5 is a, it's a hymn of God's salvation. Of, it's a hymn of God's victory and uh, of God's deliverance. It's a, it's a song of God's salvation, of his sufficiency, of his sovereignty. From it, from it, as we study through it, we're invited from the author to, to turn away from the insufficiency of the things of the world and to find our ultimate delight, our ultimate satisfaction in a God who reigns. A God who is sovereign over all things. We're, we're, we're invited to, to, to fix our gaze upon a God who is holy, 
to delight in a God who has saved his people from utter destruction. And then we are charged to go and tell. Go and tell of his mighty works. And so since God has, is holy, since he is sovereign, since he, he reigns over all of creation, we should, we should sing out his praises and tell all of his triumph. Judges 5 is to be read in, in conjunction with Judges 4, which we went through a couple of weeks ago. Uh, like I said, Judges 5 is a response. It's this song or this hymn of God's deliverance of his salvation from the hand of, of this king named Jabin, who is a king over Canaan. And, and it's a song through Deborah and through Barak and through Jael. Now, now I, I know the narrative that we went through a couple of Sundays ago in, in Judges 4. Uh, if you remember it, maybe not, I don't know. It's pretty ho-hum, pretty bland, pretty forgettable story. Uh, I mean, I feel like I'm always reading stories in God's word of people getting tent pegs driven through their skulls into the ground. Uh, But just in case we forgot what Judges 4 was all about two weeks ago when we went through it, let's refresh our memories uh, so that it makes more sense into what we are seeing today from Judges 5. So if you remember two weeks ago, the people of Israel, they find themselves enslaved once again. And they're enslaved. This is a constant rhythm we see throughout the book of Judges. They're enslaved because of their betrayal. They're enslaved because of their forgetfulness of God. They've wandered from God. And so now they're enslaved to this king, as I just mentioned, named Jabin, who was cruel and oppressive. Now, Jabin had this commander that was over his army uh, named Sisera. Sisera had 900 chariots, the author says, of iron that was at his disposal. It was the author's way of saying that this military was the superpower of the day. God, so God hears the cries of his people. His people were enslaved to Jabin uh, for 20 years. The people cry out finally to God for deliverance. And, and it says he hears them. He delivers them. And he, he begins to speak to his people through a woman named Deborah that we're introduced to in Judges 4. Deborah then calls on a man named Barak to go. Listen, God has spoken this into your life and, and has said, go raise up an army from amongst the people of God, amongst Israel. Now go fight Sisera. But she also tells them, Barak, God has already promised you deliverance. God has already promised you a victory in this, in this battle. The victory is certain. And, and so that's what we see happening in Judges 4. So they go into battle. The enemy is completely cut down. All of Sisera's army is destroyed except for Sisera himself who escapes. And, and he goes and he finds what he thinks is safe lodging. So he runs away from the battle. He's the only man left, last man standing. He runs away. He finds what he believes to be safe lodging in this tent owned by a woman named Jael. Sisera, exhausted from the battle, exhausted from running, thinking he's found safe lodging, uh, Jael feeds him, gives him something to drink, and he collapses on the floor. She covers him with a, with a little rug for him to, to go to sleep, thinking he's escaped, thinking he's, he's, he's safe away from, from harm. Jael, though, seeing an opportunity to crush the enemy, it says takes a, a tent peg and takes a hammer and drives it all the way through his temple till it pierced through the other side of his head into the ground. And my favorite verse of Judges 4 was verse 21. It says, so he died. Yes, right? We got that from context, but he died. So God saves his people we see in Judges 4 yet again. Yet again, he saves his rebellious people. Judges 5 now is a hymn. It's a song of response 
to God's salvation. Most likely, Judges 5 was written by Deborah herself. And it speaks to and it tells of God's triumph. But as I said just a moment ago, it is inviting us into this worship, this worship of a God who is holy, this worship of God who is sovereign, this worship of God who is victorious. And so where chapter 4 records uh, the, the event of Israel's deliverance and, and hints at God's hand in it, Judges 5, as we see, as one commentator would say, is, is the theology that we see of Israel's salvation. Tim Keller says it this way in his commentary. He says, chapter 5 looks beneath the surface of the history and it reveals God's hand that was hinted at in chapter 4, who is behind it all. Now, as I said, we're all singing a song. We're all singing a song of, of delight in something or someone. And so as we, as we tune our hearts to, to sing God's praise, what do we see from this chapter, these even just 11 verses here that, that we read of in chapter 5, as, as to why God alone is, is worthy of all honor, of all praise, of, of our affection? I, I want you, in the time that we have this morning, to give us three reasons to, to praise God and then we're going to end this morning with just a, a charge, a, a call to action. So, so three reasons we see in these 11 verses on why to praise God. And then we're going to leave this morning with a, a charge to action. So let's look at reason number one we see from the text. We want to praise God for his work of progressive sanctification. Now, I know that phrase there is, is not one that's used a lot. Uh, we're not typically throwing out the, the phrase progressive sanctification a lot, especially if you didn't grow up in the church. That might be the first time you're hearing those two words together. What, what is progressive sanctification? Why would you put that in the main point? Uh, but, but I think this is a, a, a phrase that we need to know. We need to know what it is. And we need to understand what God is doing in progressive sanctification. And so uh, progressive sanctification is, this, is the ongoing process of becoming more holy, becoming more righteous, becoming more, more Christ-like in, in our character and in our conduct that, that comes about as, as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. That is progressive sanctification. God, through his Spirit, who is indwelling believers, to become more and more and more like Christ. And, and we see this being the work of God alone that's in and through us. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul says that those whom he, God, predestined, he has called. And those whom he has called, he also justified. Justified means to declare right. So, so through no work of our own, we are declared right through the life, through the death, through the resurrection of Christ, you have been justified, which means you are standing now before a holy God and seen as righteous, not because you are, but because our faith is in Christ who is righteous and his righteousness covers us. That's the glory of justification. But from that moment then, what's taking place? He continues on. And that those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is his process, this movement toward glorification, becoming like Christ, becoming holy. Now, we won't become Jesus, but we are putting sin to death. We're becoming in our conduct, in our attitude, uh, warring against that which robs us of joy and delight in him. We're, we're moving in that direction. And this is the work that God is 
doing. And, and, and we see in Philippians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, again, speaking of this work that God does, he says, and I'm sure of this, that he who has begun a good work in you, he who began a good work in you, this is the work of justification, the work of salvation. Now, now he speaks of, in verse 6, this ongoing process. He's going to bring it to completion, he says, at the day of Jesus Christ. So now, Paul's saying we're looking toward the second coming when Christ will come and consummate all things, when all sin, when all things will be removed and we will be in the presence of God. But until that day, God's at work bringing about the, the work that he is doing and molding and shaping us into the image of the Son, conforming us into that image. God's at work doing that. He began the work and he's gonna bring it to completion. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3 would say, this is the very will of God, your sanctification, that we become more and more holy in our, in our conduct, in our attitude. This is the ongoing work of progressive sanctification. So that means at the moment of conversion, when, when, when you repent of sin and you turn in faith to Christ alone, through no work of your own, but in Jesus, God justifies you, declares you right, and that the Holy Spirit in that moment seals you and begins this continual ongoing work of conforming you into the image of the Son. Now, we're not talking perfection here. There's coming a day when we will be glorified, Romans 8 says, and praise God for that. But until that day, we, we strive, to use biblical language, we strive, we labor, um, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we train ourselves in godliness. This is this ongoing work that we do every single day. By God's grace, we're putting sin to death and we're living as Jesus has called us to live. This is God's will for us and this is the work that God is doing in our lives through the, through the work, through the title, through the phrase of progressive sanctification. Now, where do I get that in the text today? Well, look at verse 2. The author says that the, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord, meaning praise God, praise God that, that leaders took the lead, that people began to offer themselves willingly to the Lord again. So Deborah here is, is praising God for the work that he is doing in raising up leaders to finally battle against the enemy, to do what he had called them to do. The, this enemy which had been enslaving them for the past 20 years. She's praising God for, the, for his working in the hearts of the people here who are now beginning to offer themselves willingly in, in service to their God. And so again, remember that the, the Israelites, uh, as we're reading through the book of Judges, they'd, they'd found themselves enslaved because of their sin. They found themselves enslaved because they're wandering from God. They had forgotten him. And, and yet, what do we continually see and be reminded of throughout this book up to this point? God didn't forget them. God was still at, at work in their lives. He was not absent. So that, that means as, as, we, as we look at that now through, through our lenses, that means no matter how dark or how twisted or how, how broken things may seem to be in our lives, God is sovereign. He's able to, to pierce through the darkness. He's able to, to heal the brokenness. He's able to restore a fallen people. This is what he does. And Deborah is seeing this and is rejoicing, rejoicing in this revival 
a revival of what she's seeing amongst God's people. They're, they're returning to him. Now, not all of them, but she's seeing a stirring up of, of, of many that they're, they're returning to him and they're offering themselves willingly to him and leaders are leading them to, to treasure God. It's, it's a new day she's seeing and there's great praise happening because of it. And so she clearly says that this is the work of God. Bless the Lord. Praise God for what he's doing. If you're anything like me, if you're anything like me, then you wrestle with, you wrestle with feeling as if you're not as far along spiritually as you should be. Anybody feel that way? I'm not, I'm not as, as far along spiritually as I should be. I, I, I get that a lot when, I, when I'm talking with people and just, hey, how are you doing? What's God doing in your life? How, how, what, what are you putting to death? What, what's going on in your life? And I, I get that response a lot. Like, I know I should be here, but I'm here. I know I should be up here, but I'm just, I'm just not there yet. And, and so many people, and maybe you can resonate with this, do we grow frustrated. What's wrong with me? I, I know this is where I need to be, but I'm here. What? And so we begin to feel as if we're failing. We're failing. We, we begin to put our heads down. What, what's the point? I, I can never get to where I need to be. But I want us to think of it this way. Think of it this way. The, the great coaches throughout history ha, have been able to, to visualize where they want their teams to be. And so they can look at their team and they can begin to see, okay, here's the strengths, here's the weaknesses, but here's the strengths. And, and they, they begin to recognize that, that often, okay, yeah, we're not, we're not there, but you know what? Okay, if we do this, this, that, we're going to get there. And, and they begin to work. And they get to, to put the pieces all together. And, and what, what great coaches will do is they start to move toward that goal. And it takes time. Sometimes it takes years. But, but again, great coaches are able to, to take these steps toward that end of what they're seeing, what this team could be. Think of it this way. Now, the Holy Spirit is at work in the life of a believer leading us toward that, that great and final end of, of glorification. This, this is the work that God's doing. Okay, here's where we're going, but we're not there yet, right? We're, we recognize that. But, but the Spirit's leading is, is always going to outpace our grace-driven effort. Okay, so I'm gonna say it again. The, the Spirit's leading where we, where we think we should be, where we know we should be, it's always, it's always going to outpace our grace-driven effort, working, laboring by God's grace through the power of Spirit to, to move in that direction. And so I want us to be encouraged. The, the encouragement is, is not to despair because we're not yet glorified, because we're not yet there. But, but we are to then praise God for the work he has done, he is doing in our lives, to, to rejoice in the trajectory of what is taking place in our lives. And so it, it's like, where was I a year ago? Where was I two years ago, three years ago, five, five years ago? Whew, man, I was really wrestling in this area. And man, by God's grace, that's not really a, a, a stronghold for me anymore. What's, what's happening there? That, that's progressive sanctification. Now, I know I need to be over here, but I was over here. And, and so this is the work that God's doing. He's bringing us along. I've heard one pastor say that, that, that this road toward glorification, this, this road of sanctification is not a super highway, he says. It's a crawl. It's a crawl on a dirt path. And, and so we've got to be patient in the work that God is, is, is doing. It, it, sometimes I illustrate it this way. It's like a 
if I, I brought my children up here and, and just said, okay, for the remainder of our time here, I'm just going to have Maddox stand here. and We're all just going to stare at him for the next 20, 30 minutes. And at the end of the 20, 30 minutes, I say, okay, who saw him grow? Who saw, who saw him just sh- shoot up in, in that 20 minutes? Like, nobody would see that. But what do we do with our children? Every year, we put them against a, a wall, right? We put a little yardstick over their head, and we put a little mark, and, we, and then we look, and we're like, whew, man, you grew like three inches this year. And, and I want us to see that's, that's the work of progressive sanctification. We're, we're not going to always just see instant shooting up and growing, but when you look back over the past, you begin to see, man, there's been growth. Praise God for that. This is the work that God is doing. The, the Israelites, they're a mess. They're a mess. And, and yet worship could still spring forth because God was at work in their lives, in the messy life of these people. And because he's at work in in the mess here, that means he's at work in in our messiness as well. So we praise God for the work of progressive sanctification. He is at work in our lives. A second reason to praise God is because he is holy. Praise God for he is holy. Look at verses 4 and 5. It says, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The, the author here is actually speaking, if you read through the rest of, uh, of Judges 5, you're seeing really how God brought about the victory, really brought this massive flood, I think, that washed away uh, the, the army, uh, caused him to be in confusion. Uh, so so he, she's reflecting on kind of how God brought about this, this, this victory over, over Sisera, but she's looking to just the, the creation kind of drawing its, its affection and gaze towards this holiness of who God is. So the heavens dropped, the clouds dropped water, the mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. The, the, the verses here are describing a, a theophany, uh, an, an appearance of God to some degree. The, the author is even looking back to, to God's leading of his people through the wilderness and into this land that, that he had promised them. Uh, the, the drawing upon uh, this, this great promise given to them by God that, that he will bring them into this land and that he will fight for them against their enemies. All they need to do is trust him and obey him. And, and so they're looking, the author here is looking at the might and the power that's just displayed by a holy God. She's reflecting even on, on God's uh, presence with his people on Mount Sinai with Moses. And when God's glory covered that mountain, the, the mountain quaked. It was consumed with his glory. And the people witnessing this rightly responded in, in fear. In fear, I'm not going anywhere near that. Right? As one commentary says, when the Lord shows up, creation reacts in worship. This is the God who fights for his people. This, this God is, as scripture would say, holy, holy, holy. As, as a, does it dawn on us? We read in uh, Isaiah, we read in Revelation, this, the, the, the angel surrounding the, the throne of God, and day and night, it says, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy. Can, can you picture that they never run out of like, we're doing this again? Again, we're saying, like, they're, they're so drawn to the holiness of God. It's like, we have to say it again and again and again. He is holy, holy, holy. Do we rightly praise God and fear God because he is holy? If we did, we would not flirt with sin the way that we often do. If we rightly understood the holiness of God, our worship would be electrifying, powerful, affectionate. 
But when we come into the, the presence of a holy and righteous God, we, we then rightly understand our lowliness, our dependency. Uh, R.C. Sproul in his book, The Holiness of God, says the, the clearest sensation that a human being has when he experiences the holy is an overpowering and overwhelming sense of creatureliness. That is when we are in the presence of God, we are humbled and become most aware of ourselves as creatures. This is the opposite, he says, of of Satan's original temptation in the garden. You shall be as gods. No, when we come into the presence of God, we recognize our lowly state and his exalted one. When we fail to recognize the holiness of God, we elevate self. Our pride becomes front and central to to our mission in life. We we begin to see others as only a means to an end to get what we desire. We, We are no longer humble, yet in the presence of God, surrounded by his holiness, we see ourselves as who we really rightly are. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah he has this vision of the throne room of God's, God's glory, his grace. And in this moment in Isaiah 6, it says he falls to the ground. And he says, woe is me. He says, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king. In the book of Revelation, the apostle John sees this, the risen Jesus in all of his glory and John says, falls to the ground like a dead man. It, it's, it's this picture of, of, of like, I don't belong here. I, I need to leave this space. I, 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 this is different. Like, I, I should not be here. Um, a, a few years ago, Amy and I, we were in uh, Utah. And we were visiting one of the uh, Gospel Peace Church, church obviously we're connected with here. And uh, we were there for their, their first service as a, as a church. But uh, while we were there for a few days, it's a beautiful area and uh, surrounded by the mountains. And, and you'd see on the mountains like these, these houses. And, and you just know that's not a cheap house. And there's some, there's some money behind that. And even from a distance, you're, you're just like, man, this thing is, that thing is huge. And so one day we had some free time. So we just drove around, just started kind of working our way up up this mountain just to look at these homes. And the, the further we got up the mountain, this is just me, this is me thinking internally, the further I was getting up that mountain into these neighborhoods, the more I was like, I don't belong here. Uh, it, it was almost like this moment of like, are the police going to come and say, no, you need to go back down, right? It was just this picture of like, I, this, these are two different worlds here. And I, this is not the world I even can remotely connect with here. And so we're just driving around, just feeling this sense of like, yeah, I think our place is a little bit further down south, the mountain. And, and I was thinking about that in, in this area here, just when we come into the, the presence of, of God, this is what Isaiah thought and what John felt. It's, I, I don't belong here. See, our God is holy. And when the Lord shows up, we worship. It's a response. Do you see God as Holy. All of creation trembles at his word. Do you rightly fear God and live in this, this awe of his, of his might, of his glory? Praise him, worship him. He is marvelous. Number three, we praise God because he doesn't abandon his people. Amen. In verses six through nine, it says, in the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, 
In the days of jail, the highways were abandoned. The travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, rose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Again, this call to praise. These, these verses end again with this, this blessing of God. And see, when God showed up, when all things seemed hopeless, and the reaction to this was, was worship. Deborah is saying here in those verses that, in the song, that these days were dark. That's what she's saying. In those verses, these were difficult days of oppression, of enslavement. She says the roads were abandoned. The highways were abandoned. Why? Because they were dangerous. They were dangerous. They were filled with robbers and thieves. And so she's saying people were taking all these different ways to, to get to where they need to. But most people just didn't go out because no one was feeling safe to be out and about. Fear was gripping the people. She says towns are shriveling to nothing. People are shriveling to nothing. Their army was shriveling to nothing. She looks at the, their, their uh, idolization of these false gods with this outrage Israel's now looking to false gods and idols to find this relief and find this salvation. And their lives were spiraling out of control into nothingness. Their army, she says, was now a mere only 40,000 men. They were at one point boasting over 600,000 fighting men. And so she's looking at this and saying, these were hopeless days. We had completely wrecked ourselves and life for Israel in this season over these 20 years seemed absolutely hopeless. And yet, God showed up. And, and, and when God showed up, things begin to shift and change. Have you ever felt lost before? Just lost before. And, and I mean, I mean, I have no idea where I am type of feeling. In the, in the days before Google Maps, GPS, when you just had to just kind of drive around and hopefully look for something familiar, right? Like in those days, you ever been in a, a spot where you're just, I, I have no clue where I am. And, and there's that feeling of anxiousness. I, I actually don't reckon, I don't know where I am. Uh, um, imagine being, uh, imagine with me being on a hike and you're in this dense forest and you get separated from your group, the one who's leading the group. And you have, you have limited supplies and you, you don't know where you are and daylight is falling. And how would you feel in that moment? There would no doubt be anxiousness, fear, worry, going through in, in those moments. Maybe, maybe you've experienced something similar to that before. In that moment, you're like, I don't know what to do. You, you feel hopeless. You, you feel vulnerable. There's this real threat of danger. It's like, I don't even want to, I don't even want to move. Because I don't know what's, I don't know what the next step is. Let's, let's say you experience that type of lostness for several hours and it's getting darker and it's getting darker and it's getting darker and you don't, you don't know what's about to happen overnight. Again, think, how would you be feeling in that moment? And, and in that moment of deepest fear, of deepest despair, you, you hear a, a faint call of your name in the distance and you listen again a little bit more intently and you hear it, it's a little louder. And you realize and recognize in that moment, all of a sudden, the group that you are separated from, they're coming for you. They're, they're coming to find you. And, and finally, you see the lights breaking through the darkness, and, you, and you're reunited, and you're safe again. Again, how would you feel in that moment? No doubt, a, a sense of relief, of praise in that moment, because you were lost, and now you're found. Israel was experienced. She's trying to, to say in these verses, 
this lostness for 20 years. 20 years they were oppressed under this tyrant king. They, they couldn't go out. They couldn't go anywhere. Their villages were shrinking. Can you imagine the, the, the worship and the praise of God when he showed up, when he rescued his people from their oppression? This is the hope we have today, brothers and sisters, that we have in Christ. We've been rescued. We have been delivered. God has sent his son to save us from our lostness and to bring us home into the family of God. Scripture is filled with this beautiful language inviting us into this worship. In Ephesians 2, it says, and, and you were dead. Hear the lostness. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's lost. That's, that's darkness. But here's the light, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Luke 15, what's Jesus say? What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does he not leave the 99 in the open country to go after the one that's lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I've found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. On and on we could go. God does not abandon his people. He pursues them. He brings them safely home. No matter what you are going through in this season of your life, if you belong to God, he does not forsake you. He does not forget you. He has not abandoned you. That is reason to worship. And if you're not a follower of Jesus... This is the sweetest invitation you could possibly ever hear. Come to Jesus who will save you, who will forgive you, who will accept you, regardless of your past, regardless of how broken you are. He will heal you. He will cleanse you. He will save you. Repent of your sins. Turn in faith to Christ, a Christ, a Jesus who will never leave you. These are glorious reasons to praise our God his work of progressive sanctification, his holiness, his presence among us. So as I close here this morning, let me give us a charge from this text. And the charge is this, speak of these things. Speak of God's triumph over evil. Verses 10 and 11 says, tell of it. Tell of it. You who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way to the sound of the musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. They went. The rest of Judges 5 is this retelling of God's victory over his enemies. And so we have this charge now in this song to speak, to tell of it, the call here is for all people, young, old, rich, and poor, celebrate the work that God has done, his deliverance, his salvation. Go spread the fame of God's glorious name. You can hear the charge in Deborah's words here. Go tell the people what he's done. Come see. Come see how he's delivered. Did you see this? Did you hear about this? 
Isn't God great? Isn't he glorious? Right? We had nothing. The enemy had everything, and God defeated them. Can you hear them speaking that to one another? Can you hear parents telling their children, grandparents telling their grandchildren, neighbors speaking to one another along the way, the roads by which they used to avoid? Now they're speaking and walking and saying, we didn't, used to walk on this road. Now we can walk on this. This is what God has done. It's the charge. Go tell. Jesus gives us a similar charge. Go make disciples. Go make disciples of all nations. Teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. Jesus gives the charge in Acts 1. You're going to be my witnesses. Go. Witness. We are commissioned by King Jesus himself to go tell of God's triumph over the powers of darkness, sin, and death. We are to speak of these things in our homes. Parents and grandparents sing with their children, their grandchildren, telling them of all that God has done through Christ. We speak of these truths with our neighbors and our family and our friends. We joyfully seek to spread the news of God's triumph over evil, over darkness to the nations, especially to where God's name has not yet been named. Brothers and sisters, we are worshipers of our great God. May the glory of his name, his holiness, his righteousness, may it consume us, consume us to the point where we cannot stay silent any longer but we go and we herald and proclaim the triumph of our great God. Let's pray.